so much. Would you turn tonight to Titus, if you would, Titus chapter 2, <clears throat> continuing to talk about grace. Uh, Meg mentioned, too, while uh, he was talking, I just happened to think about this, but, you know, those that are not able to be here right now, being kind of careful with COVID and other reasons, too, but like Clarine, I think Miss Eloise would love to be here. Uh, call on them once in a while. Just give them a, a phone call, a, a card, or, you know, whatever you would like to do. I know I think I just heard Clarine say amen. She's watching right now, so appreciate that uh, for her tuning in and uh, certainly want to know, let these folks know that we uh, still miss them and, and want them here. Titus chapter 2, grace is one of the most, <clears throat> or can be by some, one of the most misunderstood doctrines in the Word of God because many misunderstand or misinterpret grace uh, to mean that if a person has grace, then they have the right to do whatever they choose to do. Uh, in fact, I would look at a lot of my unsaved family. That was one of their main, uh, the, 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 the main arguments they used against us <clears throat> when my, my family got saved uh, out of the Amish religion, and that was that you just believe in this eternal security and uh, no so salvation. You just believe that, so you can do whatever you want to do. <clears throat> well, that is, that is kind of true, but what we want to do is serve God, amen? Uh, there's a misunderstanding by the unsaved person that sin is the ultimate reward for a person. So, you mean I get to do what I want to do? Now I can sin and get away with it? No, you can never get away with it. I, sin's going to hurt you whether you're unsaved or saved. Sin's destructive. And so, sin is not your ultimate goal. Serving God is your ultimate goal. So, grace does not give us a license to live an unrestrained life. Grace does offer us many gifts. One of them... Uh, we'll touch on tonight as we really can't talk about grace without talking about salvation. And, and I want to constantly remind us about salvation. It's, it's something that's been on my mind more in the last, I'd say, couple of months, I guess, as uh, things seem to be so tumultuous in the world that, man, we got our salvation. Amen? I mean, we got, we got salvation, and that just puts in perspective so much us other junk that's going on in our life. And so that's something I want to keep pounding home because I need it for myself. And, and I think I've said before already that a few, few months ago I had turned off the news and, and turned on, I've, I've read more books, I've read more Bible in the last few months and a lot less news. And I've got to tell you, uh, it hasn't hurt me. I mean, I don't know, maybe the world's going to pot because I stopped watching. I don't know. But, but it hasn't hurt me any. And so... Uh, let's be encouraged in that. But grace places guidelines in our life, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, as we'll read tonight. And so the truth about grace is that grace will keep us from doing things just like it causes us to do things. Now, we've been talking for, I don't know, this is, I think, the seventh message on grace. We've been talking about all kinds of things grace does in our life. We, we need it. It's, it, it. We get it at salvation, but we need it every day of our life. So I want to look at both of those tonight uh, as we look at tonight a restraining grace. Uh, the reason we look at this subject of grace is to know how we receive it, and we also need to know how to work it. So let's start here in Titus chapter 2. We're going to go to verse number 11 and read through the rest of the chapter. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us, what, what is teaching us? Still the grace of God, 
So the grace of God is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Boy, if we could get that verse down in our heart right there. In the midst of all things that go on in our life, troubles, trials, conflicts, uh, turmoil, if we could just remember that verse, looking for that blessed hope. And then verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Look at the last three words in verse 14. Zealous of good works. Uh, that, should, that should really it should describe every one of us as a child of God. Zealous, eager, excited about good works. So tonight we look at a restraining grace. Father, we thank you for this time we have. These next few minutes I pray you'd guide our thoughts, and keep it aligned with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. It's letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus. It was written to instruct uh, people, or pastors, specifically on the oversight of the church. Now, Titus spent much of his ministry on the island of Crete, where the church had uh, some doctrinal issues. And doctrinal issues always lead to behavioral issues. Because if you don't believe the right thing, you won't behave the right way. And so those are, are connected, and that's one of the things that was going on here where he was at. Misinterpreting grace was one of the doctrinal issues that they had, and some people were taking advantage of the grace of God. Still happens today, still have people doing that today, that you know, God just God's love, man, he just loves you. You don't have to live any certain way, you don't have to be a certain way. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So you can do whatever you want to do, live how you want to live. God just looks at the heart. Well, that's not Bible teaching. That is, uh, that's uh, not, that's uh, worldly teaching, really, when it comes down to it. So people taking advantage of the grace of God, teaching that they could be uh, forgiven, because they were forgiven, because they had the grace of God in their life, they could do whatever they want uh, under grace. Now, one of the main purposes of the book of Titus is to straighten out this misunderstanding. It's true that we are no longer bound to the law. It's true that we do not gain or keep our salvation by works. We don't get it by works. We don't keep it by works. So we're not bound by the law. But under grace, we have an even greater responsibility than did people who were under the law. Now, that's, that's one thing I was makes me laugh a little bit when people talk about giving. Oh, tithing's an Old Testament, tithing's an Old Testament doctrine. Well, if you want to, first of all, I don't believe it is. It was reiterated in the New Testament. But I, if if you want to leave tithing the Old Testament, and uh, you'll strictly go by New Testament giving, it's it's a lot more than the tithe. I mean, the New Testament giving is we owe everything to Him, and so uh, understand here that uh, grace gives us still a great responsibility to the Lord. Grace does not free us, or I'm sorry, it does free us from the bondage of sin, but more than that, it, re, it prescribes for us a new lifestyle, and it is one of restraint. Grace will help us there. I want to look tonight at the gift of grace, the guidance of grace, 
and the goodness of grace if we can get through all of it. But the gift of grace, again, just a reminder, salvation is the number one gift of grace. It is unmerited. It's a gift of God. The only way that we can achieve grace is to accept it as a free gift, just as God offers it to us. With grace come numerous gifts that God bestows on us, much more than just salvation, but it kind of starts there. But God gives us grace all the time. Uh, I think of, I shudder when I think back to this. As a, when I was in college, I did really, some really, really, really stupid things. One of them was I would work, I worked nights. And uh, so if we had a, a, a vacation time of, off of school or a break, I would work a shift and then I would drive home 14 hours. And I'd probably slept half the way. I have no idea how God protected. That's grace right there. I mean, that's just one example of grace. Uh, that God kept me alive. And I know at some points he had to have put down and, and directed that steering wheel a little bit because I was out to lunch when I was trying to drive home after uh, working. And, and, you know, those type of things in our life we sometimes take for granted, but God's grace is all around us. God's grace probably has saved you a thousand times you don't even know about. That time you were held up, and maybe it prevented something that could have happened. We don't even know about it, but God's grace is so active. We've got to remember that. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a day's pay for his time, that's a wage. When a person competes and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives recognition or for his service or his achievements, that's an award. But when a person is incapable of earning a wage, can win no prize, deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that's the picture of the grace of God. And that's us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace God gives us. So grace brings salvation. As I said, the most important gift that we'll ever receive is the gift of salvation. That comes through grace over and over. The Bible emphasizes that grace is our only hope for salvation. You will not go to heaven because of your works. You will not go to heaven because you're a good person. You will not go to heaven because you were born into a Christian family. You'll only go to heaven if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his payment on your behalf for your sin. So salvation is through Christ, 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinful life, a sinless life. He was tempted in all points as we were, the Bible says, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And then he laid down his life on the cross for us. Salvation accompanies redemption. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So since the fall, man has been under sin. Sin separated us from God, brought us under Satan's control, and since each of us have sinned, each one of us needs to be redeemed. I have, once in a while, we'll have that conversation. I know we joke that way sometimes, but if Adam and Eve only wouldn't have sinned. I mean, if they'd have only not eaten that, like I said before, I don't believe it was an apple, apples are too, I think it was a persimmon, but whatever, you know, that fruit. Uh, I, I'm kidding about that. I don't really think that. It's just uh, I, I picked the first disgusting fruit that I could think of. But uh, I, I, uh, if they only wouldn't have done that. But guess what? We do it every day. We sin. Okay, so we're no different. We're making choices every day with our life. And so when we have anger, or hatred, bitterness, and 
or uh, we use Lord's name in vain, or, or, or a myriad of sins, we break those laws as well. We have to be delivered. We have to be liberated by the payment that God demands for our sins. One of the most famous court cases in our uh, America's history, anyway, was the Dred Scott decision in 1857. He was born a slave in Virginia around 1800. His uh, master's name was Peter Blow. And when his master died, uh, he, sold, or he was sold to an army surgeon stationed in Illinois. When that doctor died, Dr. Emerson, uh, Scott sued for his freedom on the grounds that he lived where slavery was illegal. An 11-year battle with the Supreme Court ensued, and they finally ruled that uh, he had no right to be released and that he would be a slave for the rest of his life. Well, the sons of the late Peter Blow had uh, sympathy on him and purchased him back and then gave him his freedom as well as his wife and two daughters. And that's what grace does. It does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We might try, but we can't achieve it. We can't attain it until somebody pays the price on our behalf and, that, and then get, pays that debt that, we could never pay on our own. That's what grace does. So grace brought our salvation. It's for all men, by the way. I know some churches teach that grace is only available to a certain group of people. That is not Bible Baptist Church because that is not the Bible. The Bible tells us who is a candidate for salvation. In John 4, 13 through 14, Jesus is speaking. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But here it is again, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The Bible teaches over and over again the truth of whosoever. God is not willing that any should perish. I believe it's a horrible doctrine that floats out there of uh, Calvinism and different uh, believing that God created certain people to go to hell. That's not the Bible that I have that teaches that. The offer of God's grace is not restricted. <clears throat> so that's the gift of grace. And then we see the guidance of grace. God has designed the Christian life for continued growth in grace. Every Christian has received the gift of grace, if you're a Christian, or you wouldn't be a Christian. So you've received the gift of grace, but not every Christian grows in that grace. Some Christians never show the grace that God has, God shows us so much grace and they don't grow in the grace that God has given them. And so the, to experience this growth, we've got to learn the lessons that Paul shares here with Titus that we read. The same grace that leads us and gives us salvation also teaches us to live how God intends us to live. Grace doesn't become dormant after salvation. It remains an active working agent in our lives. Salvation, as I've said many times, is a miracle of the moment, but growing in grace is a process of a lifetime. Warren Wiersbe said, grace not only redeems us, but it also reforms us and rewards us. Notice that grace guides us away from some things and then toward other things. It gives us a list here in a passage that we read. First, guidance away from ungodliness. As a Christian, uh, we see that in verse 12, by the way, teaching us that denying ungodliness. As a Christian growing in grace, 
will move us away from things that displease the Lord. Now, God is not interested in withholding things from us. Sometimes we act like that. If you talk to unsaved people or carnal Christians, they put all kinds of focus on what, you, what we can't do because we're Christians or what God keeps from us. Hey, he didn't keep his son from us. That's kind of an ultimate showing that he's not keeping good things from his children. But he does want us to avoid things that will destroy us and damage our testimonies. Uh, we, we should never, <coughs> as children and as adults, we should never have everything that we want. I know I've beat the phrase to death, but give a kid and a boy or a pig and a boy, everything they want, you'll have a good pig and a bad boy. Uh, we, we, none of us should have everything that we want. It wouldn't be good for us. So deny ungodliness, it says. To deny means not to accept, to reject, to refuse something offered. God's grace teaches his children to refuse the lifestyle of the world. Ungodliness in this passage here, uh, is, it's a total recognition of God's presence is to ignore his influence, his existence, or, uh, or what he expects of us in our life. Now, the Holy Spirit, that's why we have the Holy Spirit, to help us in living godly, to help us to... to uh, it's one of the ways we receive God's grace through him, and, and uh, he's kind of an early warning system to stay away from certain things, and we need to be attentive to these warnings. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, that uh, maybe before you were saved, it didn't bother you. Then all of a sudden... Now that you're a Christian, all of, you can't do the things you used to do because the Holy Spirit uh, is in us warning us against that. One of the things doctors like to do is preventive checkups. Uh, the goal is to detect a problem early. Uh, earlier we detect a problem, the better chance we have to fix it. And God has placed the Holy Spirit in our life as kind of that early detection system. So denying ungodliness. And then he goes on denying worldly lust. Uh, Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Here's that idea again, uh, refuting that idea that because we have grace, we can do whatever we want. Or, as he words it, an occasion to the flesh. I can do what I want because I'm forgiven. I got grace. Well, we can't do what we want. God still has expectations of holiness for us. And so... He says there, don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. <coughs> Lust is a desire, a longing for the forbidden. Now, in our modern-day vernacular, we almost exclusively use lust in a sexual connotation, but when the Bible talks about lust, it's just simply meaning desire. That's what lust is. And so, uh, it's a longing for. Now, grace is not a license to fulfill fleshly cravings. Uh, some people, again, mistakenly teach that grace covers everything and you can just do whatever you want to do, but that is not what the Bible teaches. Yes, God is gracious, but God is also just and God is holy and he has an expectation in our life. We must not abuse then the grace of God uh, because how we live does matter to God. It does matter how we live. And we are blessed by how we live and we are... I believe, provided for uh, according to how we live. And, and, and these things, you know, God gives us a lot of promises. Proverbs had a, a few tonight, but uh, you go, or Psalm, wasn't it? But uh, you, go, you go through the book of Proverbs, 
You see all kinds of, you know, you do this and that happens. You do this, that happens. Malachi, about giving in different areas in our life. So we're obedient and God uh, will take care of us as he's promised to. So Christians who understand grace properly do not willfully live in sin. Say that again. Christians who understand grace properly do not willfully live in sin. Grace draws them away from sin and, and toward God. Now, grace toward a sanctified life. If you uh, have ever replaced a car battery uh, or messed around with a car battery, you know it's very important. There's one side that's red and there's one side that's black and they match with a plus sign and a negative sign because there's both a negative terminal and a positive terminal. You need both or the car won't start. And you've got to get the right one on the right one or the car won't start. And it's the same way with grace. It has both a negative pull, it pulls us away from sin, and it has a positive pull, it pulls us toward righteousness. Someone led by the Holy Spirit will strive to live by some principles laid out in our text here. Number one, we should live soberly. To live with a sound mind to demonstrate <clears throat> a temperate, self-control life. That's what the word soberly means. We can produce uh, this through the Holy Spirit, through the Lord's God's grace. We can't really do it on our own. People that try to do this on their own will always fail. Now, self-control is one of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit's fruit in our lives. Uh, that's one of the things the Bible talks about as an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life is self-control. When somebody treats us wrongly and we choose to forgive rather than retaliate, that's being guided by the Holy Spirit instead of responding to the flesh. Anybody can retaliate. Anybody can respond in the flesh. That's easy to do. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm not big on quoting him, but here's, here's a quote he made I like. Men must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge aggression and retaliation, the foundation of such a method is love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we should live soberly. We should live righteously. To live righteously means to live uprightly, to live a proper life. The problem with unrighteousness in our nation today is not politicians who are hostile to religion, and they are there. It's not temptation everywhere we turn. The problem is that God's people are not willing to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Just that simple. That's why it tells us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, we are the secret to the fixing of a nation. Politics isn't. Politics are more fun, because <laughs> we can get mad at it. It's at a distance. It's harder to look right here, isn't it? And that's yet what the Bible requires us to do. And then we should live godly. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To live godly means to living with the consciousness of God's presence. It's the realization that every moment of our lives, the Holy Spirit is with us. Are we conscious of that? He hears every word. He sees every thought. Uh, he sees every deed that you do. Everything we do, he's there. God wants our lives to be holy. 
So he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us in that area to bring glory and honor to him. Grace is meant to make a difference not only in our eternal destiny, but in our earthly lives. Every day, grace ought to make that difference. Now, maps are great for a journey. GPS is even better. I love GPS. It takes me somewhere. I, I, whenever I go to somebody's house, that's especially older people sometimes, they'll, how did you get here? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I've went to, I went to Missouri. Uh, now I'm kind of getting more used to it since we've been here a while. But the first couple times I met, went to Missouri, my mom, so which route did you bring down? I don't know. I can tell you one road I was on, 29. We started on 29. That's the only one I know. After that, I just followed the instructions on the GPS. So those things are helpful. But it's infinitely better if you're going on a journey, if you're going with somebody who's walked the way before, who has who understands every difficulty, every temptation, who wants, us to, wants to help us overcome every obstacle that we face. That's the best way to walk a journey. And as I mentioned, Hebrews 4.15 a minute ago, he has went that journey. That's why we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Now, somebody almost ruined this for me, but I want to ask a question, see if you know it. If you went through discipleship, you probably know the answer to this, but what is the least read in America, don't if you went through if you got this in discipleship, just stay quiet for just a little bit. You know, don't you? Ah, you know. We got. Hey, if you go through discipleship, you're smarter than the average Joe. I tell you, what's the le- what's the least read book in America? I know you're probably thinking, well, you wouldn't be asking if it wasn't the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's the least read, I should add, and the most available book in America. Like everybody's got it. And hardly anybody reads it. It was mentioned earlier. It's the automotive manual. Most everybody has one. And yet very, very, very few people ever read it. And then they don't know their car as well as they ought to. Well, this is our manual for life. And you're not going to be successful in living your life if you don't read the manual. We, we try. Oh, people try all the time. They try and they, they attain the things that they think will give them the fulfillment and the joy that the world has to offer. And then they find it can't help them, like we talked about and will again Sunday as we're continuing on Naaman. Naaman had everything, but he couldn't help him when he had a need. When he had leprosy, all he had and all he was couldn't do a thing for him. And so we have to stay with our manual. Now, the goodness of grace, and I'll wrap up quickly here, is grace that gives us hope for the future. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And then he talks here about the expectation of the return of Christ. Looking for that blessed hope, that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That looking for, that means to receive from somewhere else, to expect the fulfillment of a promise. The return of Christ could happen at any moment. That's the the term we use for that is imminent. It is imminent. It could happen at any time. Uh, We are to be looking for his return. We're to look for. In fact, did you know there's a crown? Simply for looking forward to the return of Christ. If you look forward to the return of Christ, there is a crown waiting for you in heaven. Now, it's an anticipated time, 
We're not just to be waiting for his return. We're to be eager for his return. Uh, and so that's what the crown of righteousness is for. 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me <coughs> a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto the, all them also that love his appearing. Now, the question is, are you ready for his return? Are you looking forward to his return? Do you need more time to set things in order for when he comes back? I mean, those are questions we ought to ask ourselves on a regular basis. I read a book a few years ago about uh, Ernest Shackleson, Shackleton's trip to the South Pole. An amazing expedition. Uh, the crew escaped an iceberg uh, after the, uh, the ship was crushed. I don't know if you ever read the story, but a uh, long story. But the ship was crushed, and all they had was a lifeboat. They could only take a couple of people. So Shackleton took a few men and left the rest of his crew on this big iceberg. And I'll be back, I hope. And there he left them. And they were stuck there. Uh, two weeks they were stuck there. They, it included, while he was gone, a major hurricane came through. <coughs> and uh, finally he reached a whaling station, but when he tried to go back, more icebergs were blocking the way. He could not get back to where his crew was. And uh, finally, four months passed. They still were back there. He finally got uh, just enough to where he could sneak a ship through, and uh, he picked them up. When he got to them, his men were ready and waiting, even though four months had passed, and they quickly scrambled on board. Then the book says, No sooner had the ship cleared the island than the ice crashed together behind them. Contemplating the narrow escape, Shackleton said, It was fortunate that you were all packed and ready to go. They replied, We've been all packed and ready to go every day. And I wonder if that's how we live as Christians. Ready to go. Ready to meet our Savior. We ought to be ready to go. Are, are you ready for the return of Christ? It's an anticipated time. It's a happy time. The Bible calls it a joyful, a blessed hope. And it'll be a time of rejoicing. The hope of the second coming is a powerful motivator for us. In fact, Again, back to discipleship, we talk about <coughs> how it's the most practical doctrine in the whole Bible. Looking forward to the return of Christ. It affects every area of your life. And uh, it's so, such a valuable doctrine to have. We have no greater, as a reason, by the way, God offers a crown for it. Because of how effective it is in affecting our whole life. So it's a great motivator. We have no greater incentive for godly living than the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And it could be any time. When company is coming to your house, you make preparations. You clean up, you straighten up, you get ready for them because you want to convince them that that is how it always looks, right? This is how we always live. No, no. Oh, I didn't expect you here. And uh, if you have things in your heart that need to be changed, if you truly believe that the Lord's return is imminent, then we need to not delay in making those necessary changes. Let's get, let's get right for the flight. Amen. And ready. After church one day, a little girl was quizzing her mother. She said, Mommy, do you believe Jesus will come back? Yes, she said. 
could it be today? Yes, she again said. She said, could it be in a few minutes? Mom again, yes, it could. Mommy, you better comb my hair. <laughs> That's being ready, amen? But we, we ought to be ready in our life. We ought to be ready with the way that we're living. And there's more we can close out with, but I just want to uh, encourage you tonight. The, the passage here in Titus kind of walks us through the complete process of grace in the Christian life. We begin our walk with God when we're saved by grace, and then we continue our walk with God as we grow in grace, as we yield ourselves to the direction of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, grace gives us that hope for the future. But I'm asking you tonight, you know, just encouraging throughout our whole series of grace, we, we've kind of had this theme running through all of it. With all the grace that God shows you, do you show grace to others? You know, we, are, we are infinitely selfish and wicked if we will receive God's grace, but we won't show grace to others. Or we won't use God's grace to, to grow in Him. And uh, so those are, that's as important. Uh, it's a very, very important thing for us to not get caught up in what these folks here were caught up with uh, that Titus was dealing with, uh, that, that thought, because of grace, we can do whatever we want to do. Therefore shall sin abound, because grace abounds. I can't exact that verse. God forbid. That's not his plan.